Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 453. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the Evergreen Network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. This week's interview is with Dr. Naima Pasha. Naima is Director of Careers and Professional Development at Henley Business School. She's won multiple awards in professional development and speaks extensively on side hustling, flexible working, and the gig economy. In this conversation with Naima, we discuss her new book, Future Proof Your Career, How to Lead and Succeed in a Changing World. We look at her work on career resilience, how leaders need to mix science and empathy, fitting in versus belonging, and pluralistic leadership. You'll find all the show notes on MinterDial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Naima. Dr. Naima Pasha, it's great to have you on my show, Director of Careers and Professional Development at the Henley Business School, founder of the World of Work, an annual conference on the future of work. And you were named as one of the IFPC Online Top 50 Worldwide Influencers on AI ethics in 2020. Congratulations for that. And of course, the reason why I got you on my show is that you have just published a book with Dr. Shahina Janjua Jivraj, um, Future Proof Your Career. In your own words, how would you like to describe yourself? Thank you so much uh, for that introduction. Yeah, so I'm Dr. Nima Pasha, just as you said, uh, working at Henley Business School. Um, and I've just given a talk, actually, and I and I describe myself because, yes, I've set up um, a career and professional development service. I've set up the world of work. I'm also director of equity, diversity and inclusion. And I've also started this brand new campaign on staff engagement and, and so on. So and I thought that's a, that's a lot to talk about, all these different job areas. So. I've kind of pulled it into one one thing. And I, I said, essentially, what I'm really interested in is human skilling, which sounds a bit harsh, but it's in a, in a sense who we are, how we develop and what we've got, to, what we can do to, to evolve and lead the kind of lives that we want to lead, which are both economically satisfactory, as well as all the other kind of things that we want from a psychological well-being state as well. So yeah, that's that's what I'd say. That's me. Lovely. So would you then say that that's your purpose, your personal purpose, human skilling? Yes, I would. I, I there's a slight hesitation there because I was telling somebody um, in the team that this is what I want to do, and I, I I think this is what I want. What I've put my name up against. This is if there's a placard, I'd be writing that on it to say this is what I do. The, the, the kind of hesitancy is that as soon as something goes into the corporate space. It, it, it becomes very exciting and then it's got a life cycle of becoming naff after a while so uh, now we're going into purpose as being I think we're, we're heading towards a, a tipping point where it starts becoming less authentic so yeah that is my purpose but you know at the moment I'm, it, it, I hope it sounds fairly authentic. Mm. So you um, in your doctoral thesis you uh, wrote about a study of career resilience so um, brazen though this my question might be, what was the main thesis of your thesis as far as gathering that resilience? 
Sure. Well, my, my doctorate uh, research covered uh, essentially how we look at working through the, a world that's non-linear, perhaps that we think is quite linear in terms of career path because of ideas that we've developed from the second industrial revolution, the revolution to some extent. Um, so as part of that, I was looking at different ideas around that, how we manage change, how, the kind of orientation to change, the orientation to the future work with the impact of AI. And, and, and a piece within that, I also looked at career resilience and I developed a scale around that to look at those people, um, you know, look at a, a comparison group of those people that had higher career resilience and those that had less career resilience. And if I can tell you the headline finding of that, there was five different factors. I don't want to go all the academic in this, but five different factors. But the factor that really came up most strong in terms of looking at the data were those people that had higher what we've looked at, what I've looked at called self-reliance. Essentially, when we think we can do something when we're when we feel that we've got um you know we've got a place we've 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 got an internal locus of control we're more likely to have higher self-reliance and therefore able to propel us forward um to achieve our goals and manage the changes around us well that's interesting then so you say resilience is about self-reliance you also as i understood it within the book talk about it of being self-aware as well with these yeah yes yes so there's five different factors around the thing i looked at so there's there's different understanding yourself as you talked about self-awareness so those people that had positive self-concept is one of the factors around self um self uh, my career resilience scale so those people who are self-aware who understand their own strengths their skills perhaps even their personality and do some reflective understanding of who they are what they stand for what they believe in and feel confident within that now you just um really happy to be here by the way i don't think if i said that at the beginning i'm really happy to be here and i've just raced back um from giving a talk to the um black and ethnic minority group um at the university of reading where i'm working uh, about some of the ideas that have come through and i talked about positive self-concept i talked about self-reliance and and to include the element of equity um, and diversity in this it's it's actually and I, I talked about this then it's easier if you've grown up with a sense of if you've grown up where you haven't had to face as many challenges perhaps if you had high levels of privilege everybody faces difficulty in life not not to disclude that at all and everybody has challenges but there are groups of people that are more likely to achieve uh, experience uh, discrimination and so on so in that environment one of the things that's harder to do is to achieve self-reliance, positive self-concept is, and it's that, and, and that's what I was really talking about with this group is how you can go in uh, to yourself and think about, do some reflective practice and really kind of build on that ability to think, you know, you can make change, you can move forward, you can reskill, you can do all those kind of things. That's interesting. You know, clearly I have more privilege within me in, in so many different ways. And yet the thing that I, I tend to zero in on is actually the ability to accept one's imperfections as opposed to positivizing what they are. It's, it's more just an embracing of our fuller imperfect selves that I tend to focus on. And perhaps that's because I, I see too many leaders with a little sense of entitlement 
or lack of self-awareness. So I, I kind of feel like they need to pull down a little bit and accept that they don't know everything, accept that they need to learn, rely on others, ask questions, and be aware that sometimes they're absolutely raving assholes for the way that they operate uh, because they're not aware of the chips on their shoulders. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm still like a child when somebody swears. I'm still like laughing. I don't. I don't do it so often. <laughs> uh, I, I, um, I would like myself to feel more comfortable with my imperfections, and um, and the book really goes into a little bit more about future proofing, understanding your your areas of of imperfection, having um, you know not not perhaps following a hubristic style of leadership and being more empathetic that's certainly clear one of the things I've talked about here is particularly what I as I've just talked about is that for those people for those groups of people who have continually perhaps been um, held back and and in the workplace um, we've got to perhaps look at an additional way of yes understand your imperfections but also understand that sometimes while you're withheld from growth and um, development is because of the structural systems around you and how you you know you don't have to beat yourself up all the time but perhaps look at different ways just even take your foot off the gas for a little while because it's hard work kind of you know being an activist for example during the workplace is exhausting it's got a mental effect it could even impact your career as well so anyway that's what I I, I talked about um so I, I think there's a balance in terms of how we how we move forward on um you know developing that side of ourselves in the workplace there's no doubt that there's a fatigue coming with leadership and and the responsibility that comes with it and if you're acting out of hubris and bravado and not in touch with who you are i think that disconnection causes you to use an extra amount of energy to compensate for this appearance that you're proposing rather than the real authentic self you could be proposing. I love that and I love the work that you've done on this as well actually so I really um, you know can really relate to what you're talking about in terms of uh, empathetic leadership connected leadership people just you know give a damn about um, the staff, the environment, uh, the stakeholders, and 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 I know we're perhaps organisations are moving towards that, or or at least making um, suggestions around that. And obviously, working at a business school, uh, you know, the, the, how people are looking at something like ESG, environmental, social, governance, kind of um, investment, and so on, is, is enabling people to perhaps think more differently. I wanted to say have just I also was lead researcher this summer on something called uh, we call the equity effect at Handy Business School major piece of research on race equity in the workplace and it was picked up by the Bank of England um the governor quoted it, it was nice super yeah I fell off my chair when I saw that it was in the Guardian I was like oh my god uh that that's it I, I can retire now um but it, it was really uh it was a great piece uh, you know I say that myself but it was uh, really proud to have led that research um and pulling a whole range of things together there's complexities around I think probably what we've got is two tracks of leadership I'm just going to say uh and this probably links to skilling as well that we've got a group of leaders that have come through from a track 
um, perhaps uh, I remember when universities, um, employers used to go to universities and they'll say, you must have this many kind of um, entry grades. You must have been, you know, to join our uh, graduate track, you must have been captain of the football club, treasurer of the hockey club. You should have gone, you know, traverse the Andes with nothing but a tin of spam in your summer holiday and this kind of, you know. This Read is the, the entire kind of works of Shakespeare. I worked at Shakespeare, rode the Atlantic, so on and so forth. And um, yeah, so that's what we, that's what we, um, and it wasn't that long ago, you know, you had to have this kind of academic attainment and so on, you know, to join, uh, join the banks and professional firms and so on and so forth. So this was recruitment through the 80s, in the 70s, perhaps you've got, you know, you're tapped on the shoulder. So you've got a group of leaders in the 90s as well moving forward. It's only in the last few years that employers are thinking, actually, hold on a second. We're just looking at our stakeholders. We're looking at our customers and we realize, God damn it, they're from completely different backgrounds. <laughs> We've got to relate to them. We've got to understand. And certainly things like the uh, murder of George Floyd that we saw last summer sparking the um, Black Lives uh, Matter movement and um, pride me too um a whole array a range of different things that we're looking at you know how different how people respond differently to workplaces so anyway come back to my research this summer is what i found actually through this research is that when employers uh, and i looked at correlation research and looked at the FTSE 350 firms when employers and i hope this will re- you'll you'll relate to this is that when they invested in their organization into race equity and when we look to correlation figures, uh, 58% increase in revenue than those that didn't. But if you look deeper behind the figures, and they were from all sorts of uh, Swissy 350 uh, firms um, and from different industries and backgrounds, so it was, you know, as broad as I could get. Um, what we also found is that there is all, and this is, I hope, what we will relate to, they also, because they're investing in race equity, the, the organisation and cultural mindset was about, you know, employees come to work, the more you value them, the more you understand them, the more you sort of um, enable them to do their best, you're going to start feeding innovation, innovation will feed productivity, productivity should feed growth. So they also had better employee well-being. they also, interestingly, had better um, orientation towards climate, environmental and uh, in a whole range of other things so we found that as well but we did still find um, a large portion about 30 percent of people still witnessing inequality inequity in their organization and race was the biggest one and through that was things like verbal abuse and lack of promotion and so on so while we're getting those people going back to those people that have come through from the 70s and 80s through that particular route they came from privileged backgrounds what we're looking at now is people coming through from different backgrounds trying to get into organizations who had different skill set and different things to offer and perhaps can offer something to that hubristic leadership that we probably see a little bit too much of in terms of different profiles i obviously there's so many cultures will promote and think more highly of people with mathematical or scientific or engineering backgrounds, highly rational. Do you see any research showing that having humanities, anthropologists, sociologists, literary folk could be better adapted, better equipped to deal with this type of world and leadership? 
Yeah, absolutely. There is, I wouldn't, I'm going to say something slightly aside from that, if I may, and I think in the sense that we do see, there is evidence to show that people from study humanities and art can obviously offer philosophy. I, I work with lots of AI firms. They kept saying, we need to hire a chief philosophy officer. We need philosophy, get the philosophers in. It was all the philosophy. And um, so we could say, let's go to this group of people who have studied these um, qualities, these, these degree programs, philosophy, arts, humanities, and not science, or we get the scientists because we need this or and i think this is the kind of things that you've often talked about in your when you sort of develop your kind of ethical framework in organizations the things that you say or we could create we could work with people that they have those you know they could come through from a physics or math or computing but they also have ethical understanding philosophical understanding and also when i because obviously working in the university for people who are studying english literature and history and things so that's fantastic because you're developing your creative and reflective practice but what if you also did a coding course as well just to understand the kind of requirements there are so we could start saying that these are critical skills that we need the human skilling thing i talked about um so we everybody to some extent understanding leaving university emerging leaders mid leaders which is what the book is really looking at particularly is developing both that kind of digital and ai skilling skill set, but also those human qualities that we're all always hearing about, but really going into a little bit more about that. And part of that, if I link to the work that you've done, is looking at how we start looking at this ethical framework, understanding how that contextually sits to where we want to go. An ethical framework, I'd say, part of that must include um, looking at diversity, inclusion and equitable outcomes for for all staff for all, and, and stakeholders and customers and all the rest of them. One of the ways you describe the skills that the future leader needs, this mid-level and up leader, is a combination of science and empathy. So I, it feels like that very much resonates with this idea of knowing how to deal with data and also with people. Yet, um, it's, it's true that logical people are usually less good at empathy. So it's a hard mix to come. Is it? Is it not some kind of five-footed horse that we're looking for? Yeah, we obviously you go out there and look for this unicorn, the five-footed horse. Um, for people have all those qualities, but we we can all have these qualities in different levels. Is one thing I can say is that we could, and we can't be something that we're not. Um, but we can all have an appreciation for other things. But you can build teams together. When I um, started working in the area of AI, and I'm not an AI technologist, I'm really looking at the skilling and kind of where we're moving forward. Um, but what I found is, the and I'm sure you have this, the technology team is sitting over somewhere or other, uh, working on something or other. And then the HR team is somewhere else. Uh, just take those two, move away from senior leaders and marketing and finance or something. But just those two, for example, are quite separated. And when I started to try and talk to these two teams to come together and try and work together on more um, collaborative ways, so we don't present something right at the end, like an employee engagement tool using AI without you know that it's presented and it looks really odd because it's it's not got all the things that hr are looking for and also we those organize those people need to come together a lot more in organizations and that's a little bit what we're saying about the the um degree qualifications that if we just go for the philosopher to come in or the computer scientist to come in we're going to create um these sort of pillars that are separate rather than kind of a pool of people that can work more collaboratively together that's what i think hmm 
So you write in the book, uh, leadership is a result of behavior and attitudes rather than being specifically linked to formal appointments or titles. As I read that, I, uh, that's sort of how I describe company culture, a uh, question of behavior, language, and attitudes. So I conclude then that leadership is really the same as culture somehow. Yeah, this is um, what it's interesting working in a business school. All business schools uh, are focused on leadership. Um, and the dean um, at Henley will talk about what we need. You know, we need to focus on on leadership or management. Um, and he said what we want is um, we don't mind accidental managers or accidental leaders because they can be quite good because they've been plunged into something, develop skill sets and develop what we're what we've got to be careful in UK business is amateur level leadership and management um, and that's where business schools come in and business schools when we're addressing leadership have to look at culture at the same time organizational culture organizational climate and and how us as individuals and leaders what we're talking about there is people coming out of university or emerging leaders they're developing their leadership skill set and that all the way up to you know your you know ceo characters as well um, but yeah, it's very much linked to culture. I don't, I, I don't think we can separate leadership away from culture. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding or seeking, feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. For having led uh, several businesses, I I think of the decision making process and the arguments and brainstorming that goes into the final product at some level. Inevitably, there's a time constraint, and there has to be a decision that is made, and you are held responsible for that as the head of the business. So a leader has that ultimate responsibility. When we talk about having different points of view, that takes time to, to sift through. Not only does it take the skill to, the, let's say, to tease out the person who's being quiet in the group or the allowing the space for the person who doesn't feel that they have the authority or the right to speak. It, it, there's also this a real issue when it comes to the ability to listen to everybody of the time squeeze. And so I was wondering how does one create not just the mindset, but the time for all this? Because a lot of people I know are working 14 hour days and they feel, I feel at the end of the day, they're rushing towards a burnout at this mm -hmm. point because of the attempts and the needs to address all these different ESG type issues in the workplace. At the end of the day, we still have to be an ongoing concern. 
Of course, an on ongoing concern because we want to do the right thing, we want to deliver to customers, we want to do all the you know economy and all the rest, all the rest of it. I, I agree. This is complex. You asked me a question that I'm kind of like I I struggle with myself as as managing a team myself working in in Henley's senior team as well. So, on the one hand, saying we need we need less hubristic leadership because hubristic leadership can lead to shorter timescales. Yeah. It can be like we're doing it this way exactly, <laughs> and I'm going to tell you the way it is. It's such. It's sometimes I sometimes. I desire that when I, you know, sometimes I'd like to be like that more. Sometimes I desire that myself to just tell me what I don't want to have to do some reflective exercise to work out where we <laughs> put the flip chart away um, and let me, you know, give that answer. But what I found myself, and I'm going to talk anecdotally because the, the research on this, I think, is supportive, is that um, two things I can go to. One of them is the four-day week that we've looked at in Henley. That's the first, just to mention that first of all, what we found, and there's other pieces of research, but this is quite a good piece, you know, quite an in-depth piece of research was involved in as well, is that when we start looking at how we can be create great efficiencies in the workplace, and what we looked at was a compressed four-day week. We didn't look at chopping a, a, um, your work off. It was like compression, stay the um, work. And we looked at the research, we looked at organisations that did it, um that what we found was was really interesting is that the organizations that adopted it did have greater productivity they found greater efficiencies there were reduced meetings those 14 hour day meetings were reduced because you just thought no i can't do that there's no way i can fit it in we'll have to find another way put something else on or i'm not doing it no this isn't happening so but the but productivity increase what we also found in that is that um, stress reduced, well-being increased, and productivity, and also quality increased as well. So, if we kind of we, if we kind of pull some things out of that in relation to time, because literally it was around time, is viewing our work differently and looking at things that we need to say absolutely this isn't possible so it's probably being a little bit more as we talked about at the beginning to be a bit more this isn't going to happen we're definitely focusing on this this is really critical to where we're going and for leaders to it's the hardest thing in leadership is to is to make decisions to to look at the kind of decision processes of what where we need to go next that is the toughest thing and then the processes behind it so being quite harsh on that i think you, you you've probably come across professor alex edmonds at uh, london business school who talks a lot about esg and his book on the eat the pie something about pies um about uh, how we can do more and he actually says look we are businesses we've got you know we want we want to improve our pension pot and things like this we are businesses but we have to be discerning perhaps our main thing we'll look for in terms of esg is environment maybe the main thing we look at is our um, work with our employee well-being and maybe it's you know part of device we don't lose the other things but maybe we need to start focusing a lot more because we can't be everything to everyone so that's the the one the main thing I, I wanted to say that we're pulling things out from that data that we create efficiencies and then also which was the most interesting thing well-being increased and quality alongside uh, productivity yeah. There was something else I was going to add, but I forgot. <laughs> there, there's Pressure. clearly a, a good amount of research that warrants, from a mathematical standpoint, it, it shows performance 
and yet the dial doesn't seem to be moving too fast. So the, these arguments don't seem to muster the, the changes that are needed behind it. No, and I looked at that as well, so thinking, well, you know, this kind of makes sense. Um, we developed the five-day working week through the second industrial revolution, through mechanisation, people going into factories, and, and I think it was Henry Ford, uh, the Ford uh, factory unions that argued for having two days off, and then voila, the weekend finally appeared. Um, so we stuck to this model for, uh, uh, you know, 100 years and beyond <laughs> get when it was but it's about 100 years ago so let's let, so we've stuck to that and what happened it's not just organizations that have stuck to that or businesses it's hospitals it's schools it's retail it's everything that we live and work around our work around this particular construct of a four of a five-day week two-day weekend other countries our suppliers and things so if we wanted to move to something like a four-day week Personally, I'm a fan, having especially looked at the research and I've tried to kind of adopt that myself a little bit. And I found it it's just a day to no meetings. Do not put meetings in this day. This is when I'm doing other stuff. And then I actually it, it's actually worked well for me. Um, the thing that's going to stop it is that you've got to go and pick your kids up from school <laughs> because they're on a five day <clears throat> you know you need your gp open or something so we've got to look at the whole this is why it's so difficult infrastructure of society and it's probably why we need to work in partnership more closely with governments and government our own government as well to look at how this might progress but i have seen some signs in government in the uk government to look at um, something like the four-day week as a possibility because of the pandemic and how our work patterns have changed yeah since. I, i've certainly talked about and implemented a, a, a rigorous notion of time. And one of the things that I was keen to do was make sure that I allowed the time for the messiness of life. Uh, and in that time allocation was also time to think strategically uh, and to take care of the things that I need to do that might be outside of work, like go to see a doctor because the doctor mm. works nine to five and, and such like. So that if I, if I were back to back with meetings, I have no time for the incidental, accidental chat where someone rushes into the open door and say, hey, mentor, I need to speak to you. Or uh, the time to prepare properly meetings as opposed to just rushing from one to the other. So I think time is such an important element. Uh, uh, I completely agree with you. And uh, again, that's what I've looked at myself. And the, just that piece of research is that, the you know, the well-being and the productivity. I mean, Microsoft's research that they did on, you know, our kind of our reaction to a lot of um, online video meetings was interesting to say. Um, not only are we slightly freaked out by looking at each other on screens because it's a bit looming. Uh, I don't know if you've been into hybrid offices yet when you've got some people or a person that's looming in and they look like all, an all-seeing Sauron god looking over Big you. Big brother. Um, so yeah, it's quite, I've been one of those people, I'm thinking, I feel very awkward, this kind of person looming out. So we're reacting, our eyes, our brains, you know, from the psychological, physiological side of things is changing. But also the research, as you just said, is that the um, 
our conscientiousness, our desire to do well, our uh, desire not to be judged for not doing well, those intrinsic drivers that we have will, will make us um, go to the next meeting, will make us accept the next Zoom and the next Teams meeting, will make us in that hybrid more complicated how we work that, um, do that extra report, do the extra. Um, and again, this is the talk I was talking about to the Black and Ethnic Minority Group as well, where people from more marginalised group are even more likely to say, yes, I'll do that in order to look like they're doing well. So the, the, the protection of space is something really critical that you said, because you've got to go to the GP or you go, go buy a present for a friend or whatever it is, or I kid. don't know, watch, pick up a kid. <laughs> exactly. So that, that I think is something really important. And it can link back, because your question was about decision-making and leadership. It can enable better leadership. That's my big statement. So the, I wanted to go into a, uh, picking up on what you just talked about, a, uh, a phrase that Brene Brown wrote about the idea or the difference between fitting in and belonging. And I think it mm. seems quite appropriate in this context. She, she wrote, fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be to be accepted. Belonging, mm. on the other hand, doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires to be who we are. And I, I was wondering to what extent that is a realistic framework, in especially in context of diversity and inclusion. Is, is the onus only on the receiving end to make everyone feel like they belong? Or, and then how do you frame the the need to fit in because you could go immigration into a country with the same type of conversation yeah uh, uh, so, thank you really lovely question actually i'm really uh, about to like launch into a passionate speech now because i feel quite uh, strongly about this so uh, uh, first of all i was talking to the same colleague i was talking uh, i mentioned yesterday about where i'm working and and somebody was really cynical that we can't really move forward what's what is the point i mean we've known about racism at least the last 400 years uh you know we've experienced really horrific things in society from genocide and all all kinds of things that you know that we've you know as a society we know so can we really shift the dial and i'm going to i want to say i i want to shift the dial a little bit that kind of steve jobs statement to put a tiny dent in the universe or whatever it is so yes we can the first thing so that's i might be deluded but i'm going to go with it i think we can make some changes and i think we've already had some changes already um belonging and um fitting in are quite interesting and i think i'm going to go back to the idea of privilege again so i have straight privilege um i'm a straight woman and for me, I've never had to think twice about my uh, sexual orientation in the workplace and think, what, you know, can I disclose things? I can be quite open. I never had that experience of thinking, will I get judged literally for who I love, for literally the kind of relationships I want? Will people start making snide comments about me? Will people start making really funny jokes or I have to see all those kind of things or not accepted by my family? That that kind of impact of not fitting in of not belonging and being accepted can have such a psychological impact which can affect mental and then physical health so i think it's quite a, a critical thing to know that you can belong for who you are 
you know, and, and you obviously, as you say, you can go quite far with this. But if we look at what well, I'm working on the Equalities Act and looking at people who are broadly uh, discriminated against, for those people, for that group of people, yes, we've got to work harder for organisations to look at how they can make things feel comfortable that you can go to work for who you are and not have that burden of hiding who you are. It's not even that long ago in the UK, we talk about other countries, but not even that long ago in the UK, for example, it would be illegal to be gay and carrying that burden of shame and so on to think that you've got to go into the workplace and feel ashamed of who you are. Um, I'm able-bodied as well, so I don't have to go to work and think, um, am I going to get to the toilets okay if I've got physical disability? Is there a toilet I could use? Is this, are there stairs I can get to that meeting? Will the, will the slides be available beforehand so I can have, you know, because they, they're, they're not in, in a way that I can do? That's kind of basic stuff that as a privilege, my privilege, that I don't think about in terms of going to work. That I have a sense of belonging. I can go and wander into Henley Business School and I know nobody's going to question me on those things at all. And I can find my way to a lecture theatre or go and get yourself a coffee or something. I don't have to think so far ahead about belonging. So that's the kind of things in terms of fitting in. Of course, we can put a ramp in and things like this. But if we created workplaces, particularly for where we've got specific groups of people who don't, uh, who are marginalised, discriminated against so sorry discriminated against that they we 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 should you know they need to feel better about you know feel more sense of belonging i guess my question naima is about the need to fit in because i i tend to believe that if i'm welcomed into a house i need to comply to the household's customs and habits, take off my shoes if, the, if that is the way it is, and eat the food that I'm served because that's what they prepared. So at that level, I'm fitting in. And it feels like that's not what people are looking for when it comes to a job. It's like you need to accommodate everything about me. I prefer to wear shoes. I want meat, not vegetarian or whatever is being served. And so I, I, I wonder about this gap between fitting in and belonging this this is quite well uh, it's i'm really glad you, you you talked about this so we've got um it's quite well prescribed in the in the legislation it's quite well prescribed in in organizational culture it's it's fitting in so you're not discriminated against so if you went to someone's house and they and you don't uh, and then they invited you there or you got there <clears throat> and they make you feel incredibly unwelcome and they make all the food that you can't eat and um and you you know you've gone along you have you've taken off your shoes or not taken off your shoes whichever one it is uh, in the house but and then you you you're, you're sick on the way home because that you know the food was really was wasn't didn't agree with you then you've really had a horrible time and that in a weird way is that's what happens in some organizations that came through from the equity effect that some people we've still got 30 percent of people getting verbal abuse for what race they are in their organization so we're not we're not getting um of people who uh, who experience racism by the way so what we what i'm saying is not um it's at the core side of anti-discrimination that we need to look at first, rather, you know, rather just rather than 
say oh let's all get on because we can or we should all bring variance and difference and expect we should all respect different cultures and we're always going to have difficulties where we on the borders of those things you know if you and I were friends well hopefully we are friends now (laughs) we'll find things that as any group of friends will have well that that feels uncomfortable to me that feels fine to me yeah I think the, Um, the challenge we have is allowing for debate argument the diversity of of opinions and mindsets without it becoming well you just told me that because you're a woman or or you're just saying that because or you know making it part of the identity of the other and getting meta on the conversation as opposed to sticking with the the confines of oh i disagree with you you know vehemently naima because this is my opinion oh. these are the facts and and it well you're just you're just we don't speak to me like that and 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 how I, to avoid that situation because frankly i i've i've done many different types of environments and you can either be polite in which case people don't really express themselves or you can go all out like a very like the French are very much you know voluble and and you know saying everything and and saying swear words, and and you could take that personally, especially if you're not used to the culture. So how does one create that environment and yet and also really have success and you know efficient productivity etc. that you were talking about before? Sure. Well, there's two. Two things. First thing uh, was around if we're looking at in the workplace and looking productive. You just said talk about productivity, and I really, uh, I'm really uh, obviously a big fan of your work and looking at your work when you worked at L'Oreal as well, and looking what L'Oreal has done in terms of. I'm like, wow, what have they done in terms of not just um, looking at uh, the product range, but it's supporting indigenous women, for example, in how uh, you know in terms of like self development and and so on. You know, and it's all around beauty. It's all about beauty cosmetics. Something I'm interested in um and that if you've got your end goal about productivity and outcome about i don't know what the purpose or mission might be but bringing i don't know bringing beauty to every gender that wants to wear them women men people who are binary whatever it is you know if it's something about that making them feel good maybe it's something like that then if that's your purpose then you will know that diversity is going to be critical to your business goals so bringing people around the table kick your shoes off don't kick your shoes off let's have a discussion where we try not to get polarized because we've got this end goal that we want to support these people and that's the value side of things and I myself and I completely agree with you it's difficult and I have this debate so I've got my I've got my stance in this on uh, how I want to look at um, diversity inclusion and my my one is equity my my focus is on equity in the workplace Um, and I'm taking it and I'm quite strong on it, that it's a business outcome. And that's why the equity effect was looked at the business effect of, of discrimination and all the rest of it. So, and this sounds to you like, well, that seems quite sensible. But when I'm working with people who are or coming across so people from social justice backgrounds, psychological backgrounds, educational backgrounds in the space of DNI or DNI specialists, some find it, um, they've talked about a dehumanizing because business shouldn't be, you know, we should be doing the right thing because it's human talking the language you say. So I'm saying, no, this is business because business is people, it's community as, as we know. So that's the approach on equity. The other aspect of it, if we are going to, as we've experienced across the world and Brexit and so on, if we're not 
able to talk collectively, we've got to look at the language you use. So the language I'm using in my equity practice, and again, I get into, uh, <clears throat> I create challenges for people because I'm not, I don't want to use words like um, white fragility or um, I can't remember what, I can't remember, <laughs> I can't even get them through just because there are connotations there's anger. So if we toxic if we want masculinity to, would be another one, surely. Toxic masculinity. There you go. So these kind of if we want to, especially in business, want to create that goal back when you're at L'Oreal to get all these people to to, you know, we want to do this particular aim. If we're using this kind of language, it's like if we're looking at AI adoption, if we use very kind of aggressive language around it um language that separates people off we're not going to progress so i think that's part of you're absolutely right we have to create a different language the kind of things you talked about in terms of empathetic leadership which is really about connection and understanding uh, from my uh, from what i've taken from what you write about no and talk about yeah. uh, so <laughs> yeah. dr naima pasha with a name like that uh, as we spoke offline uh, there's a southern indian route uh, passing through Persia with a Pasha. Uh, I also uh, have had several Indian um, in, uh, guests on my show. And in 2015, I uh, saw uh, research that showed that 30% of Fortune 500 companies have Indians as their CEOs. Uh, of course, there are over a billion Indians in the world. So you might say that's close to representative, yet it, it still is a higher index than the populations, Indian populations in uh, UK, United States, where the majority of the Fortune 500 companies come from. So in, in this leads me to believe that there's something going on, whether it's with Microsoft or Google uh, or Pepsi uh, with Indra Nui, there's something going on about the Indian gestalt, the Indian way that is leading them to be more accepted, maybe, or better leaders. What do you think about that, Dr. Nahima Pasha? <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, South Indian. I'm still waiting to run my, um, you know, billion dollar, trillion dollar uh, AI company um, based on my ethnicity. So there's a few. You did ask me about this, and I and and it's something I've thought about a lot myself. Uh, coming up again, more and more people from um, this so the same diaspora that I'm from, and I think there's different elements to it. One of the elements is the absolute emphasis on education. It's part of the psychology of uh, many Asian countries, African countries as well. Education, you have to do well. Um, there is a negative side to this as well. So whilst we're going, this is great, but the focus on achieving educationally is really strong. So we may not see that many Olympians, for example, in um, from India, Pakistan, other places, just because there's such a strong emphasis on academic achievement. And many of the organizations that we're looking at that people have got, you know, done very well academically. These CEOs have done very well academically. They've done well academically in India, then they'll go off to US or London Business School or something. Even Rishi Sunak that we've got as the chancellor. Um, uh, did extremely well so academic achievement is really part of the Indian psyche it's even part of some of the religion um, in you know the Hindu religion and Islamic religion as well really pushing education really high so that's one of the things and then the other thing is this you talked about the kind of qualities about um, succeeding about the connection to community 
um, the ethical practices around trying to do well and to do good, where we see, um, I think it's now the new CEO of Barclays is South Indian background as well, just taken over from the person that was asked to step down <laughs> and go to that bit more. But yeah, the, and was chosen, I was reading the piece and why it's chosen, it's that South Indian, um, they're talking about kind of humbleness, very bright, committed to employees, really kind of lack of hubristic leadership. I don't know. That's that's anecdotal observations. Yeah, it's not. I certainly feel that there's something in there. And it links into this last question I want to ask you, Naima, which is around pluralism. You you pushed back, if you will, the way I read it anyway, about inclusion, the D and the I. You say it shouldn't be about inclusion, which means to enclose, uh, which doesn't sound like a, a good place to be, but f- rather you would focus on pluralistic leadership. And and within that, it leads me to think that India is a little bit more of a pluralistic country. Um, and I was wondering if that was a, not a link. But in any event, in, in some few words, can you tell us why pluralistic or pluralism is a skill that leaders need to have to, to uh, future-proof their careers? Well, in terms of India, it's um, it's it's such a vast um, country uh, because, and also politically, it's changing as well. So, I'd really go into it in a in a in detail because we've got and every organization will have cultures, traditions, ethics, religions that will create things, and we've got political, um, perhaps a climate that's perhaps not entirely the same as well. So one of the things uh, organizations definitely we look at is around pluralistic um, approaches. And it's not, I talked about DNI and people come from different ethnicities and all the rest of it, but there's also just different ways of thinking and how, um, you know, the bias, the cognitive biases, cognitive differences that we need to, to bring in people from in the UK, we still got divides from North and South of the, of the UK. And that's, that's, that's similar to many other countries as well. And it's how you can start um, looking at where we need cultural, cultural differences and, and differences that come in together. If we don't have that, and there's some really good research by in Henley that shows that when you get diversity from all kinds of diversity, those teams perform better, but they don't perform better straight away. So what sometimes we have, the pain of diversity, the pain of pluralism coming in where we've got different kind of, or people come from different backgrounds, can feel difficult. You'll, you know, come around to dinner and people like, take off your shoes, don't take off your shoes, that kind of painful conversations that you have to begin with. Once you go through that, you outperform. That's what the research really really particularly showed. So it's really being able to focus a lot more on difference and what the contribution difference. And it re- this is where leadership comes into its own. This is where people do need to take a steer. And we, I know you talk a lot about um, empathetic leaders, non-hubristic leaders, but that doesn't mean a leader that doesn't take responsibility for meeting the challenges moving forward. They can't always go around with a flip chart. And what do you guys think? They've got to, <laughs> they've got to go in and say, this is where we're going. Cultural pluralism, for example, that we're looking at differences in, in our team and our organisations. And I'm going to take the stick for, for the first stage of this working, I'm going to accept failure. I'm going to keep going with it until I get the results. If it doesn't work, start again. I love it. Well, I think that in the end of the day, it's a journey and it, it does take hard work, conscientiousness. 
it also means having the courage sometimes to just make a decision, even if it pisses people off. And uh, it, it can't be just a an easy road. I think to say it, it would be an easy road would be to misunderstand business in general. And, and I think it, it's a, a whole learning that we have ahead of us. Dr. Naima Pasha, how can someone track you down or follow you? And of course, how can they get your book from Bloomsbury Business Press? Oh, thank you. Yes, of course, the book is called Future Proof Your Career, How to Lead and Succeed in a Changing World, uh, available in all good bookshops. So it's also on Amazon and WH Smith and Waterstones. Um, I'm um, Director of EDI and World of Work and so on at Henley Business School. So you can always contact me there and on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter. Ignore a lot of my Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous, Naima. Thank you for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure and such an honour to meet you as well. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You can also subscribe on your favourite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
me to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman. This is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.